Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy, interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Today's guest, Tori Yates Orr, is an Emmy-nominated on-camera host, producer, and history communicator based in Nashville. Her mission is to make history education engaging, entertaining, and accessible for the public. She's the host of the Skeleton Keys podcast, and her history lessons can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tori Yates Orr. In this conversation, we dive deep on Tori's identity, family makeup, and the dynamics of today's racial climate. We talk about freedom in various respects and how anger can move mountains. So if you were to get married, I don't know if that's something you want in your life, but if you were to, what would you do with your last name? Um, I've always said I would keep it. Um, I think it would be hard for me to give up my last name uh, just because of that. My brother's, you know, one of my brothers has a kid, so the Yates or name is going to move on. But I don't know. Depends how good the last name is. <laughs> are you? Are what you, would be? Have you ever thought about that? What would be a good a good oh, last name? Like I feel like if it's something that sounds like like a spy, I like I would if it sounds like international mystery, I would probably want that last name. <laughs> that does not surprise me based on like the things that you're into, <laughs> right? So, um, in that instance, I would probably want a new last name. But I, I just love my family. And I love my family's history so much. It would be hard to let, let it go. So on that note, how has your family influenced the way you see yourself? Like emotionally, ethnically, professionally? What, um, what influence have they had? I mean, my family is everything to me. Um, I come from a very tight family. There's only, I mean, my dad is in, our, in my life, but my mom raised us as a single mom, so it's, it was my mom and my two brothers, um, and so we're very close knit. Um, I identify as black; both my parents identify as black, um, but we are very fair skinned. Uh, so I have a brother who identifies as mixed race. So it's kind of an amalgam of things in our family, and an, uh, and different journeys for different people. Um, but it doesn't make us any less close or any less, you know, crazy amongst each other. Um, so we're very, my family's everything to me. My family is a big reason why I, I love history and why I love what I do. Can you describe more of how they informed what you do? Um, well, I mean, I think growing up and, you know, a predominantly white uh, community, um, my mom always insisted on us knowing our history. Um, and so 
from a very young age, my mom was teaching us about our ancestors, like knowing about our ancestors was really key to us. So, you know, we were eating foods that our ancestors ate. Um, we were, you know, singing songs that they sang. So there's a very deep ancestral connection there. And even moving forward, that's kind of always been my touchstone. That's what I go back to. Um, if when I pray, I you know, always want to pray to the people who have passed on. That's always kind of been a thing for me. Um, I haven't really shared that with anybody. So you already got that out of me, Riley. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's just been a, a big part of who we are. And I come from a long line of really strong women. So that's kind of the Yates trait as well. Hey. Hey. So what kind of food do you eat? So like, for instance, so like a weird story, um, my great grandfather and my great grandmother had land on the Choctaw reservation in Oklahoma. So that's where my mom spent her summers. Um, and so they made like flatbreads and they made traditional Choctaw food that my mom just grew up eating during the summer. Um, we're not Choctaw, but <laughs> those are the, the foods that we ate from there. Um, and then, you know, I've got family from Kansas to Oklahoma to Detroit. Um, we're kind of all over the place um, in, in America. So we've always been uh, cognizant of that in terms of our food. Um, and now both my brothers are in Texas. So now we've got the Texan influence in the Yates name as well. <laughs> That's cool. I like how you pick up, you know, you don't necessarily assimilate, but you kind of acquire like the culture that you live in. Yeah. yeah. It's weird how that happens. It's, you know, you don't lose yourself. You just kind of pick up another aspect. I know you're really close to your mom, mm -hmm. right? I am. Um, and I feel like she's informed a lot of your career path. Do you feel like, do you ever feel like the path was paved for you or was that like a collaborative, a collaborative thing? Um, like, it, do you have, did you have passion from a young age or did you like fall into it? Do you know I, I mean? fell into it. I wanted to avoid it like the plague. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't want to do what my mom does. I'm not her. I avoided it at every turn. And then it just kind of kept happening where I was, getting jobs that put me in front of a camera where I was hosting things. Um, so I got it honest. Uh, my mom is a very accomplished journalist. Uh, but yeah, for the longest time I fought it because in my family, I'm kind of seen as the free spirit. So I was just like, I don't want to do what anyone wants me to. I'm going to go and just be like a struggling actor in New York. And I kept booking a whole bunch of like hosting stuff. So Eventually, I was like, all right, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should explore this. So I guess we should define what it is you do. Uh, so I am a on-camera host and producer um, and a history communicator, which means that I basically talk about history and communicate it to the public in a way that is accessible and engaging. Um, so my mom is a news anchor. So I could read a teleprompter by the time I was six. Uh, so it's kind of the family business. So it kind of brought me around full circle to where I'm at now. And why, well, do you, are you hosting for any specific channel or are you like freelancing? So I freelance, I host for uh, like Parade Magazine. Uh, I did Spalding. So I just kind of do wherever I'm needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a specific genre that interests you? Um, I'm not necessarily a genre. Um, I just think it's interesting to do anything that's based in 
academics because I kind of come from an academic background. Like my background is not in journalism. Um, so anything where I get to just basically nerd out is always going to be something I'm going to be drawn to. If I get to read an academic journal, I'm all for it. You were nominated for an Emmy mm-hmm. and you and your mom were the first ever duo to do it, right? Like as a mother-daughter. Yeah. Um, so we were nominated two separate categories. I worked for a, a different company than she did, um, but we were both nominated in the same year. How coincidental. That's pretty cool. It's cool. To, like share that moment. Yeah, it or was, was it? really cool. Yeah. Um, I totally put, put those words in your mouth. It could have been awful. So you no, can say no, no, it no, was no. awful. <laughs> no, it really was. It was cool. terrible. It was horrible. <laughs> it was the worst. Why can't I just have my night? Um <laughs> No, uh, it was it was incredible. Um, my mom has six Emmys, so it's kind of old hat to her wow. by now. But for me, it was my first time being nominated, um, so it was it was really cool. We didn't win, but I wasn't expecting to. It really was that super cliche. Like I'm just happy to be nominated. <laughs> what were you nominated for? Um, I mean, go ahead. Um, so weirdly enough, it was for history. I did a campaign. Uh, basically talking about black history that's happening in Nashville now. So we talked to the first rocket science program at HBCU, which is at Fisk. Uh, We talked to the North Art Collective. We talked to uh, the only black owned bookstore in Tennessee. Um, So it was basically a campaign for Black History Month that they decided to nominate. And luckily I, I got nominated for it. Can you dive deeper into the Black history of, of Nashville? Um, well, I think if people don't know, Nashville has a huge, um, a very important civil rights history. Um, during the 60s, like the sit-in movement was very much centered here. Um, Diane Nash, Ron Lewis, like that was all happening in Nashville. And I think it's something that doesn't really get talked about as much um, because Nashville has such a big name in music and in the country world that we kind of tend to forget about the actual history that happened here. Um, so it was kind of my point of going and saying, yes, we can talk about the things, things that happened in the past, but people are creating history here now. Black people are creating history here now. And we can't just push that to the side because, you know, a, a new bachelorette party is coming into town. <laughs> No shade against bachelorette parties for you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The the culture of Nashville that's like pushed, you know, into mainstream is yeah. is very interesting. I um yeah, so I don't think a lot of people don't know that I lived there for almost two years. Yeah. Uh that was an interesting time in my life. How did you like it? We never got to talk about it. Um, yeah, I wish I had been closer to you. <laughs> that probably would have been really good for me. Um I I think honestly, the way I define my time there is so influenced by who I was and what I was dealing with personally. And so I don't feel like my assessment is fair um, because it was a, it was a tough time. I, a lot of growing pains. I did not know what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I was in the service industry, as you know, which I think was um, detrimental to me, like personally, just those hours. I mean, working till 3am as a cocktail waitress at a speakeasy and like the kinds of conversations I had to navigate with customers and the drinking culture, it just took a toll on me emotionally, physically and otherwise. Um, And so yeah, I think I think the sort of career path that I threw myself in was tough. And, um, you know, I was fresh out of college. 
And honestly, racially, I, I dealt with some weird, weird comments, a lot of Confederate flags. Um, people were like shocked that I lived like near five point. I mean, you know, just like some, yeah. So, you know, and then I remember like right before we left, I walked into a, a brand new bar and like, I think it's downtown and painted on the wall, like giant, like floor to ceiling was this white girl in like a bikini and the Confederate flag was just painted across her butt. (laughs) And I was just like, I went up to the bartender and I was like, you know, that that's really problematic. And I'm actually offended and uncomfortable to even be here. And he was like, you can call the manager on Monday. It's like, okay, that's useful. Thank you. I appreciate, thank you for your service. <laughs> First of all, so, there's so many things wrong with that. Like, so many things. So, so many, many things. Like, why was it on her ass? Like, why all these? So, the, yeah. And also, and like people think, you know, the Confederate flags are antiquated and like that's only a certain demographic of Nashville. And it's, it, it's like, no, actually, have you walked downtown and gone in that bar? <laughs> that bar just went out. You know what I mean? And I think it's a weird, like, people want to. I, I don't, and I've experienced this here, here in Nashville, which, you know, has led to me kind of think, rethinking if I want to, you know, continue living here. There's a kind of want to get back to this like Southern, like culture. Like I even yeah. think that when people come here, they expect that they expect, you know, the down home Dixie and, but it's, it, it's, it's encased in like a sheen of, Oh, but I'm evolved. Oh, but I'm, but there's in the core of them, there's kind of a want for that or nostalgia for this weird kind of southernness. Yeah, that totally. does not appeal to us as women of color. Right. Yeah, I remember getting into um, an argument one evening out after working um, with a guy who told me that he was disgusted by our need to get rid of the Confederate flag because it was such a quintessential part of his history. And I was just like, I don't under, in Germany, they got, I don't, let's compare our history there, right? These flags, if they belong, if they were German, they would not be flying, (laughs) right? So, um, yeah, I mean, when Berlin marched recently, honestly, that was the first time I cried with with everything going on. I was, I was just like, that is so deep considering what that country went through. And they're out there marching for us. See, mine was Belgium. Mine was Belgium because of King Leopold. Um, but yeah, th- I think it, it's really interesting that you bring up Germany because that's always the argument is that if we don't have these monuments up or if we don't have the flag that we won't remember history. I don't think there's a person alive that doesn't know who Hitler is and they don't right. have one statue of, of him. Right. And I think it's also important, especially during this time, we're talking about Confederate monuments these monuments went up decades after the civil war they were Mm -hmm. put up as intimidation factors Mm -hmm. like these are not like we just want to honor these people it was put up in in areas of town and cities where black people would be to remind black people of their place so there's really no need for them no and i think that's that's why it's one reason why what you do is so important because you know, I was listening to Trevor's no, no, Trevor Noah's book. And I don't know how many times I brought up his book because it just had me like feeling all kinds of feelings. It's so good. It's so good. And I love how he talks about Hitler. And I mean, granted, he was saying that in their education system, he the history was often not discussed, right? They weren't privy to it. But around the world, generally, people are really educated about that history. Whereas the history of the Civil War, the history of what the United States went through is oftentimes void 
of so many important elements like the incentive of the statues, right? And so I think what's really problematic is these people don't even know what they're fighting for. <laughs> they don't even know why they want the statues there. Um, and, you know, you think about, like, I remember some of the schools I was in growing up in the South, it was like, that was the war of Northern aggression. You know, yep. I was in the civil war. It was a war of Northern aggression. Yep. And I was like, daddy, what does that mean? He was like, Oh, let me, let me turn on roots for you. All right. Let's go watch. Roots. Girl, is that every black girl's like introduction to like, well, yeah. let's put on roots. <laughs> Kizzy is like your hero from like a very young age. Yeah. I'm like, I was probably too young to be watching Roots, but my mom was like, okay, baby. <laughs> uh, but so important, you know, I'd, I'd rather be exposed too young than not know at all, you know? <laughs> exactly. I think it's really important to know. And I think that's the problem that we're having now is that, like you were saying, I don't think people know what they're fighting for. I, I genuinely don't. And I think a lot of it is coming from a, a point of fear of not Absolutely. knowing or feeling different because, you know, whiteness is being talked about. But for people of color, we've had to be the other for so many forever um, that now that we're talking about whiteness, I think people are really uncomfortable. And so they're grasping at straws or grasping at uh, monuments that they feel encompass their history when. It's not necessarily the case. The Confederacy was only five years, people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, people have relationships. I have shoes that are older than the Confederacy. <laughs> uh, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say, okay, so if you could actively describe how you speak on history publicly, mm -hmm. what, and, and like the purpose behind it, you know what I mean? Like, my mission is to create awareness, right? Or whatever. Yeah. What, how would you describe it? What are you trying to do? Um, I think my mission at the core of it is engagement and to provide context. I think historians typically have not been the people that reach out to the public. Um, and so when that happens, you do get the textbooks that'll show the war of northern aggression or, um, you know, I always remember my AP U.S. history had one paragraph on slaves and that was it. Um, so my mission is to kind of get people engaged in history that they might not know about um, and understand how it relates to the present. Because I think that's something that a lot of people are missing is we think of history. We think, oh, that was in the past or the oh, Civil War. That was in the past. But we're seeing right now how it's affecting the present. So that's my mission is to get people engaged and interested in something that they probably thought was boring or dry um, and to understand how it's affecting the now and to understand it from a point of view of someone who is a, a black woman. Because um, I don't think we don't get to tell our stories. Stories are told. There's always that old adage. Stories are told by the history is written by the winners. Um, and typically, Black women, people of color have, with colonialism, have not been the winners. So mm -hmm. I think it's time to get another point of view. And so that's kind of my mission is to provide that in any way I can and to get people engaged in this subject that I love so dearly. What would you say is your vision for that mission? Um, my that vision dream? is uh, like, what's your dream? What's, what's your dream? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to have a program. Um, whether it's online digitally or, um, TV is what I know. Um, 
but that breaks down history in a way that is accessible for everyone. A lot of times it's, it's too academic. I don't need, people are not interested in academic journals like I am. Um, and I understand that. I think more public historians need to understand that. Um, so whether it's digitally or on TV or um, in a book, I would be a horrible writer, but I would help have someone help me. I think it's important to get across, especially to this younger generation that's coming up and is killing it, um, understanding their history, but understanding it in a way where they can convey to other people, this is what this means. This is why this is important now. That's really key to me. Yeah. And I love that you call that engagement. I feel like a lot of people use the word awareness. And I think the issue with just being aware is that you don't necessarily do anything with it. Yeah. It's um, and so by, yeah. So by actively engaging, you know, you take that awareness further, you pass it on, you know, and so then it becomes a sound wave and now you're influencing more than just one person. I just want to roll it back a little bit to mm -hmm. see how you got to where you are. What, where did you go to school? Didn't you, you went to school in New York? So I went to uh, drama school um, in yeah. New York. Um, and then, but my degree is from the University of Tennessee. So I went to UT Knoxville, got a degree in Africana studies. And then two years later, went to drama school, I think. How did you go from college to career? What was that like? Uh, it was a winding road. Um, <laughs> no kidding. Girl. <laughs> Girl, it know. is a struggle out there. I feel I sometimes I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like I'm still figuring it out. Like, I, I don't know. I don't totally. know where this is going to go. Yeah. Um, but so I went to college, got a degree in Africana studies. My whole family was like, why did you get a degree in that? Um, I was asking myself why I got a degree in that, <laughs> um, to be honest. Uh, and then I I'd always done acting like that was what I would I was doing that for a job when I was in college. Um, and so I went and kind of pursued that for a while. And then uh, that was in New York. And then I came back to Nashville and was still kind of doing acting and then bartending, um, which, you know. Um, and then I got a job where I signed a contract with this TV station. And I was under contract with them for like four years um, where I was hosting. And then at the end of that contract, I was – that free spirit Tori acted up and she was like, I'm going to go back and freelance. So uh, <laughs> that brings me to where I am today. Can you describe sort of the different experience you had between New York and Nashville? Um, yeah. Uh, oh gosh. It was culture shock in a weird way because I'm from Nashville. Um, mm -hmm. And I love New York. Uh, it's one of my favorite cities to this day. I met some of my best friends there. Um, but for me, I, it drained me really, really bad. Um, I think well, this is going to sound so cliche, but like I'm a person who needs like nature. <laughs> like, yeah. I need green space. But yeah. And so I, I found myself kind of getting drained because I think New York, the energy in New York is very, you're hustling all the time. Like you just have to hustle. And I feel like even when you're not hustling, you're hustling. Exactly. Like just leaving your home is yes. a hustle. I used to think when I left, it was almost like you were going to like going into battle as soon as you walked out your apartment. <laughs> and after a while, I remember I came, I like my mom had come up to see me and she goes, uh, so you look like a vampire. <laughs> She's like, it just looks like all of the blood has been drained out of your body. Uh, 
Well, are you also like two different shades between getting sun and not getting sun? Right. You know, it was winter. <laughs> I was it's always pale. weird to go from season to season. You're like, no, literally I always look at my makeup color. and I'm like, why is this a different color? <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, winter, summer. Um, but yeah, so it was just like the hustle. It became too much because I think in a weird way, I didn't know what I was hustling for. I think if I went mm. back now, if I lived there now, I would have a different focus. I would probably be more adapted to it. But then it was more of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to find myself. And then having this constant hustle on top of you. Yep. Yeah. I feel like in some ways, at least for me personally, I'm sure this isn't for everyone. Um, but a life in New York for me would be something to do in my youth. <laughs> you know exactly just to explore it to experience it i don't think it's who i am intrinsically but if i wanted to dabble it would make sense that's precisely it like i feel like okay i did that i don't have a, a need to do it again <laughs> <laughs> so I'm if good. you were to live anywhere else where would you go besides nashville i don't know I, that's kind of what i've this quarantine has kind of brought up for me is trying to figure out my next steps. Cause in a weird way, I think uh, both of my brothers live in Texas. Um, one's in Dallas, one's in San Antonio. Um, my mom is in Nashville, but I just kind of feel like somewhere else is calling me, but I'm not sure where that place is yet. So we'll see. Austin. <laughs> my brothers keeps me like, Oh, you love Austin. <laughs> <laughs> People think it's like the sister city to Nashville. I think it's like, the grand or well i don't know it depends on how you want to think of it it's the more evolved version of nashville in my opinion besides the fact that we have black flight <laughs> i don't know what else to call it except for you know unless i have to dive into a paragraph of what it means to literally have a ratio here um but how do you, but, how do you yeah. deal with that uh so for me you know i believe no matter where you live in this country especially you're going to deal with BS around mm -hmm. race. You know, I think you can find if you put put in the work, put in the effort, I think you can find your community anywhere. And for me, I, it just took a couple years, you know, I think around the two year mark, I felt like I'd found some people. And then now I feel like, okay, I, I have a community that understands me who I understand, who has given me infrastructure and can support me. Um, and so there then no matter what the city you know, is facing, or no matter what I'm facing within the city, at least I have people around me who get it mm -hmm. and who can do the work alongside me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been important. And then also just like my mentality around it. Like I see the fact that, that there aren't as many of me, I see, oh, more opportunity. You know, I'm less likely to get drowned out. Um, and so I'm like, how can I utilize that opportunity in a way that's altruistic and in a way that helps the next girl that moves here that feels isolated, you know? So there's a lot of motivation um, in filling that role and in amplifying it so that I can help the city grow in the direction that I want it to grow. I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah. And my brother wants me to come to Texas because I think he just wants a babysitter who's closer by. <laughs> It's very selfish. It is very selfish. <laughs> He's so rude. <laughs> uh, what would you say? Are you still quarantining? Um, I'm trying to stay in. Um, I when I found out the corona effects uh, in terms of stroke, um, I had a mini stroke a couple years ago. 
so I'm high risk for that. So I'm trying to be stay in. I'm a homebody naturally. So this is kind of, this is par for the course. It's fine. (laughs) Have you learned, you kind of touched on this. Have you learned anything new about yourself in quarantine that was surprising or Um, the way I just said surprising was very strange. (laughs) Surprising. (laughs) Was it surprising? Um, That makes it sound like it was magic. Um, It was a lot of, honestly, quarantine, it's been because I've had to do nothing but kind of sit at home, it's been a time of like self-reflection. So like I got back in therapy. Um, I've kind of started doing a lot of self-work in quarantine. So it's been nice to kind of have that space to do it because when you're working, you don't really, or you're having to go out all the time, you don't really, you can kind of push that wound away or you can push that work you need to do to the side. But when everything is shut down, you're just at home. You're like, well, I guess it's time to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And so what have you figured out? Um, I think it's a lot of, of kind of looking at my patterning of how I have been doing things and how I can change why I do those things. Um, and really looking at it instead of just kind of being judgmental of it. I tend to be very hard on myself and, I've learned over quarantine to kind of be easy and to give myself a little bit of grace um, as I'm figuring things out or as I'm developing in to whoever I'm going to become. Uh, Just being kinder with myself has been a really big key. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how that's, I almost feel like a lifelong reminder. Exactly. That's never, that's That work will never end. Yeah. Ever. So, um, just like swerve, <laughs> we're just gonna like hit right me with turn it. I'm ready. You're really into wrestling, and <laughs> I know that you and Jack have like had a, some a little bit of dialogue. It's maybe it's maybe even put the, put to rest. But I remember he was like very into the fact that you were into wrestling, um, because he loves wrestling. He does. So he might love it more do, than me. Yeah, probably. <laughs> like a top three for him <laughs> anyway why do you like it so much where did that interest come from um I always tell people it came from it, there's a lot of things growing up the only sport I was good at was martial arts I was just I was a good fighter um but I was also a theater kid <laughs> so <laughs> that makes so much sense wrestling is kind of the combination it all makes so much sense, of the two yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then now as an adult um, and as someone who works in history and in mythology, I can witness the archetypes that are on display in wrestling. Mm. I can be like, oh, I know what this character is or what this represents. So I can kind of approach it from an academic standpoint. But really, it came from just like, I like drama and body slams. And that's what wrestling is. Do you, is it like a too, super individualistic, like personal thing? Or do you have like a wrestling community? Um, well, it's funny. Um so I had a podcast for years. Like I worked talking about wrestling. Um, I actually, I, I guess I should probably tell Jack this. Um, I got offered a job with the WWE. <laughs> yeah, I turned wow. it down. Wow. Um, Why? To be like an on-air like host because like- I've been I've been in the Fair yeah yeah. That's <laughs> a. I don't think I've told anybody that. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so I, it kind of came from a community. I watched it with my friends uh, as an adult. 
Um, and we would always go to shows as grown people. Um, it was me and a bunch of like people who were dads. So. <laughs> <laughs> who are just we're just buds um so it's very much a community thing i haven't watched it regularly in a while but i still have a lot of love for it yeah that's really it's it's great i mean i i feel like it's that's pretty deep that you were able to find a way to combine two passions that you're good at you know yeah i mean i think it shows that you get yourself you know and I think, you know, when you're a kid too, I always, when you're a kid, you you know yourself before the world gets their hands on you. And so as I get older, I keep seeing instances where I'm like, oh, I was into that as a kid. Like I was into history as a kid. Mm. And I'm like, oh, of course this is going to show back up. So it's kind of like an unveiling of your inner child on display. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, part of that is That's wrestling. Cool. You speak on really significant issues and Oh, gosh, I'm not even going to go down the rabbit hole of what it means to be a woman in media, because I think we all have. Let's um, talk about it. Yeah, well, I'll let you talk about it. But I'm I'm just curious. I don't know if you necessarily want to go through experiences you've had, but what does it mean for what has it meant for you? Um, how have how are you seen? How have you been treated? And how do you deal with that? Um. I think a lot of times, if you're a woman who's comfortable in her beauty, I think people can be dismissive if you want to speak on on deeper things or you want to speak on, you know, academic things. I think there's a tendency to say, you know, oh, well, you know, you're not going to know about this or just kind of sit and be pretty. And as a woman who so many of us are, are, are get, being comfortable in their beauty and unapologetic, that can be misconstrued in media. I think that's kind of um, unheard of right now, of being able to do that and also be like, hey, I want to talk about redlining or I want to talk about Henry VIII. I always kind of, I kind of wavered when I was first starting to do history stuff of should I kind of play myself down or, um, you know, not wear much makeup or don't wear anything that shows off my body? Because I've had issues with that before where people were like, hey, you need to kind of dumb, dumb your light, dim your light. Um, mm. And they told me that. They were like, you need to start looking more regular. Um and I decided I'm not – literally, they said that. What is, what is regular? Okay. I don't understand. I was just – I was very confused. It was a company I worked for and they're like, you just don't look accessible. And I was I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, this is me. Um, and I think that's – every woman's version of who they are, their full self is going to be different. Um, my version is going to be completely different than your version is going to be completely different from somebody else. And I think when someone tells me you need to dim your light, that can mean different things. But for me, it meant like, don't come in with your lashes. Don't come in with, you know, don't wear anything that shows off your body, anything like that. Um, and so I had a lot of issues with that going into history because I wanted to be taken seriously. Um, and I wanted people to respect me in the historical fields. Um, and then they did. 
But then I also was like, you know what? Why do I feel like I have to hide who I am or if I want to wear this dress for them to respect me? And then I was just like, screw it. <laughs> and, and then when I think you get to that point where you're like, screw it, like you're going to see my full self, my full beauty, my full uh, light. I think the world opens itself up to you. And if people aren't happy with it, screw it. There was a neighbor that my aunt had and she always said that she was the most powerful woman she knew. And I asked her why. And she said, because she has no shame. So no one can tell her any different. And people talked about her. She didn't have any shame about it. She was just herself. She was kind of, you know, the eccentric one on the block, but she had no shame. And so I think it's just a sense of freedom that comes with not caring. But like you, there are certain people who I genuinely do care what they think about me. It's just when you get older, that circle starts to shrink. I've heard that shame is the only self-taught emotion. Mm. You know, like fear and sadness, those are emotions you can't always control. They're human. Yeah. Shame is human too, but it's something that you stir up inside yourself. Like you have control over where, whether you want to feel it or not, which I, which I think is really interesting. Is there a yeah. moment in history or a story in history that really speaks to you? Like you read it or you learned it and you were like, damn, that I feel that <laughs> in, my, in my heart. It's kind of my go-to because it was my first um, one would be Cleopatra. Uh, I, she was one of the first stories I ever read when I was a kid, um, just about her life. And I was always really drawn to the fact that they talked about her intelligence. That was always really key to me. They always talked about that she spoke eight languages and that she was so charming. They didn't talk about her physical appearance. Um as much. And that always like interested me. Um, and I guess because when I was younger, like my physical appearance wasn't, ish, wasn't like really talked about, um, not in a bad way, just that wasn't the focus. And so Cleopatra's story of being this woman who was maligned by some people, adored by others, um, and in a weird way, kind of a messy woman really resonated with me even as like a little kid. So I used to say when I was in like elementary school, Cleopatra was my best friend. Uh, and her name, I have her name tattooed on my arm. Uh, so I think the story of Cleopatra, the mess uh, that her life could be seen as and her strength and intelligence has always kind of resonated with me. So Cleopatra is my favorite historical story. Are there any sort of um, like false opinions or false claims about who she was that bother you? Um, I think, I think she's always, I think she's painted as like this grand seductress um, all the time. I think, but what we have to be cognizant of in terms of history is that the stories that were written about Cleopatra were typically written by men who were Roman, who had every right or every reason not to like her. And they were typically written like hundreds of years after she died. Um, so it was basically creating this stereotype of this exotic seductress who took their upstanding gentlemen from ancient from Rome and brought them to the sex den that was Egypt. It's not the case. Like, it's just not how it happened. The girl had a flair for the dramatic. Absolutely. <laughs> but she was incredibly intelligent and actually like gave a damn about her people. 
Um, and so I think that kind of gets uh, pushed under the rug for the more salacious uh, sides of the story. So I think that's partially why. Um, and then, you know, that she was like a grand, like she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She definitely did it. She wasn't, you know, typically the typical attractive woman, but she was gorgeous and smart and uh, driven. So I think that's that's what I like about her. And that's what I wish more people knew about her other than that. She was just sleeping with Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony. <laughs> right. Which is kind of, um, I mean, that's, it's no different than some of the stories that are told about women today, especially women of color. It's in the media. Exactly. You know? And so on that note, how do you feel about the way um, <laughs> our current affairs <laughs> are being described and portrayed in the media. I think we've kind of talked about this is that the Black Lives Matter movement is is huge right now as the main story. Um but we've been talking black people have been talking about this for years. Um so it's a weird it's a weird feeling like when I watch the media talk about it cuz it's like oh they're talking about it constantly. Um but part of me is like, well, where were you when Mike Brown died? Where were you when Emmett Till died? Like, I go back. But I also think it's hard to – the many issues that go into Black Lives Matter and making sure that Black people's lives are, are um, held up in high regard is so dense and so multi-layered. There are so many factors into it. It's hard for media to discuss all of those in a one clear narrative. And so I think the narrative becomes the protest uh, or re-showing George Floyd being mm -hmm. murdered instead of actually looking at, okay, how can we fix this? What are these problems? How does this one problem of black lives um being subjugated for 400 years, how is that affecting the prison population? How is that affecting education? How is that? That's not easy. That's not easy to put into a minute and 30 package on a new show. Right. So I right. think it's just, it's hard to, to put the narrative of what's going on um, in the media in a way that we can kind of touch on everything. It does feel like they're recycling or repurposing content. You know? Yeah, it's like the advice influencers get like whatever you put on YouTube, just pivot it and share it on Instagram. You know, <laughs> it almost feels like that's what news channels are doing. That's exactly um, what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's quite lazy. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's and it might be because it is so layered. They're just like, ah, well, this story I can write in 30 seconds, which. Right. And this will this will prove to be clickbait, you know. Yeah, I think it's mindful people have to understand. People are trying to get clicks. Like, that's really what it is. So be yeah. mindful of that. And I don't for, I don't know how you feel about it. I don't – I can't watch another black person be killed on camera. I can't. I won't. It it it, it absolutely – yeah, it, it destroys me. I don't think it's – for me, it's not necessary. The act of filming – that tragedy was necessary mm -hmm. because it forced people to look at the larger issue. Yeah. However, we've, we know the larger issue. We've lived it. Exactly. We've seen it. We've experienced it. It's in our blood. 
we don't need to see it again. Yep. We've been seeing it, you know, so why would I put my being, which it would, it would require all of me. Exactly. Why would I put myself through that horror, which it would be. I mean, I, I think I'd have to lock myself up for a long time to get over it if I saw that. Yeah. Um, and that's not helping me help our society, you know, so that's not, that's not going to be my way. And I think that's also yeah. like, so important, especially for black people, like taking care of our mental health in this time. Cause this is heavy and I, it, yeah. and it's, a heavy burden we've had to carry for years. Like this burden is in our, in our blood, like you were saying. So just to be mindful of that and to, to be gentle with how you take in this information, because it's a lot of information and it's constant. And I think it's always good to maybe take a step back um, because black joy and black rest, those are all important as well, as much as black justice, you know? So take care of yourself. That's a, Self-care is a revolutionary act, as our Lord said. How do you do that? Where do you draw your lines? Um, I think it's, for me, working in media, I think I have to take breaks from it um, because it just becomes like too much overload. And so that's really key for me. Um, like I said, I love nature. So if I can go for a hike, that's always really helpful. Um, and then just... It could be something as simple as like dancing around my bedroom, uh, just things that kind of get me out of that space and back into my body are really key. Um, but just yeah, protecting my mental health is 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 huge. I suffer from depression, so I have to be mindful of what I intake and how it affects me. So the way I feel is that. Though I, I recognize objectively that my mental health is really important, it's not been a priority because mm-hmm. it's not a priority. Um, I do believe that we are, I think, either on the brink or in, in the very beginning stages of a historical revolution. And so I want to be a part of that. I think, it, again, like I said this before, I don't mean this in a patronizing way or that like I am the end all be all. I am not that at all. I am I am one voice and I believe that our voices combined, you know, um, amplify, right? And so mm-hmm. I it's my duty to be a part of that conversation. I'm happy to be angry right now. I want to be angry because my rage is my fuel to act. And so I don't want to sleep. I don't want to sing Kumbaya. I want to feel this energy that I feel and I want to put it into action. And I I think for me, speaking out, that's my way of marching. And I think that's important. I think everyone has a tool and has a skill that they can bring to this. And mine is through giving it historical context um, or, you know, putting people on to like, okay, this is how you can learn more about what's going on. But what you said about anger, I think is so important is that anger gets such a bad rap. Oh, don't be angry. Oh, it's all about love. We should just love each other. Move above anger. Anger. That is ridiculous. There's a a monologue that Orlando Jones did uh, for American Gods. And he's talking to, to slaves who are coming to America. And he says, angry gets shit done. And it does. It's getting shit done. And that's what we're about right now. It's not about, well, let's come together and maybe somebody will open the door. We're kicking the damn door down. 
We're dismantling the building that has the door. It's not about the door anymore. It's using that anger to get that done is so necessary right now. And if you're upset by people being angry, if you're uncomfortable with it, just you're going to have to be uncomfortable. I I think for me, just I appreciate the attention that we're getting now. I appreciate the brand opportunities. And also, where were you a month ago? Where were you? And and on, on top of that, I'm not discounting it, right? It's great. I mean, I've seen some people get promoted. I'm really happy for them. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's been growth, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to sound bitter. Uh, but, you know, there's a way to go about it. And we are not free. People are taken aback when I have the audacity to ask for what I'm worth. It's almost a sense of, well, you don't have a right to say that. Oh, you should just be happy to be here. No, I know what I'm bringing to the table. I know what I'm about and I know how much it's worth. And it's not worth free. And it's not worth um, spending a week and <laughs> of my time or, oh, but you know, this would be great. Exp- no, no, I'm not. I'm not doing anything. Like for me, I'm going to pay my friends. Like if my friends are doing something, I'm paying my friends what they're worth. That's just how I feel. So if I can do that with my friends, you can do that for me in a professional capacity. It's been time for Black women to get their worth and more. Um, and I think that's going to be a big part of this revolution, too. We've been talking a lot of Black men have been the focus, um, as you know they rightfully should be. But Black women need to be put to the forefront and treated and respected um, just as much. Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at WokeBeauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at WokeBeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Oh.